0: Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. I should be home and well-recovered from a month-long trip to the tropics, but not happening this year with COVID-19. So got me to thinking a little bit about the tropics. What's special about them, birding the tropics, that sort of thing, especially because my daughter and my son are both in Costa Rica right now. Costa Rica is basically locked down. You can't really fly into Costa Rica at all. And I had intended to visit them there last month, do some birding there, and then go on to Peru for a period of time. I had a bird guide set up for a few days there. I was going to be doing a rotary friendship exchange. That all got called off and got me to thinking about uh, Costa Rica especially because I still am hoping to go visit my uh, children there sometime soon. Uh, The tropics are... Just a different area when it comes to birding. Birding the tropics is not easy. I haven't birded the tropics a whole lot, uh, and it uh, got me thinking well, what are the tropics? I remember learning about the tropics somewhere in school. Well, it turns out the tropics are defined as the areas on Earth where, the, at some point during the year, the sun is directly overhead. So that turns out to be about 23.27 degrees north, the Tropic of Cancer, and 27.23 degrees south. Tropic of Capricorn. Uh, so, in between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn is the area called the tropics. Uh, now, you think of the tropics as being just hot and jungles. At least that's what I think of the. Tro- I used to think of the tropics as, but turns out the tropics are not all the same. Uh, not not by a long shot. There are deserts in the tropics, there are jungles in the tropics, there are big mountains in the tropics, there are big cities, and there are very rural areas, a lot like anywhere else in the world. But one thing about the tropics in general is that the days tend to be, because uh, they're not as far uh, from the equator, the days tend to be similar uh, in length all through the year. You don't have the 20 hour days and the you know, six-hour nights or the 18-hour nights and six-hour days or whatever that you might get uh, much farther from the equator. I grew up in Maine and now live in Washington State so both areas are fairly well up into the temperate zone and we have long winter nights and long summer days here, whereas in the tropics, the days and nights are relatively similar length all through the year. Costa Rica is a really cool country. I think one way to think about what makes Costa Rica cool? Well, their national bird is a clay colored thrush. That's a bird that we get here in the ABA area in the L'Oreal Grand Valley, uh, where it just barely comes up that far in its northernmost part of its range. Uh, but it's a it's a cool bird. It's robin-sized. It's in the Turtus uh, genus, like our American robin. Looks is shaped about like the American robin, but it's just sort of drab brown overall. Doesn't have a lot of coloration. And although they're seen frequently in lots of places in Costa Rica, they're just not a bird that you is that memorable. They have macaws. They have colorful tanagers and all sorts of spectacular birds. But they named the national bird the clay-colored thrush. And I asked, why would that be? And they said, well, it's because it's a very gentle bird and it has a beautiful song. Well, it is gentle and it does have a beautiful song. But naming your national bird a bird because it's gentle and has a beautiful song, I think speaks a lot to the mentality and attitude of the people there. It's a beautiful country. Uh, In terms of size, it's about half the size of the state of Maine where I grew up. Uh, And it's about a quarter the size, the state of Washington, where I live now. So it's a fairly small, fairly small country, and uh, it's moderately populous. It's not uh, a place nobody's at. There's some cool bird facts about Costa Rica. It has 898 species on its eBird list, uh, and the top e-bird is Jim Zuck with 860 species. Uh, and there are four eBird hotspots in Costa Rica with over 500 species on the hotspot list. So there are places you can go with tremendous bird diversity. COVID 19 has been a big issue in Costa Rica. Uh, as of, uh, of May 27th, there have been only 10 deaths and 984 cases, but they closed the border down early on. Uh, so it's been really uh, well contained and uh, from a standpoint of uh, Preventing the disease from becoming terribly uh, devastating from a illness standpoint. Uh, I've They've only been a there once. I wish I'd been there more. My daughter's been living there for about three years. The first year I couldn't really visit much. My wife was sick, but after she passed, I got down to visit uh, in 2018. I went in August, and it was hot. My daughter is living on the on the Caribbean, way down near Panama in Puerto Nueva. Uh, and uh, it's a it's a really cool place, uh, but it was hot. It was blistering hot, uh, and so I did a lot of birding uh, from the porch on her Jamaican-style home, uh, where they had a nice uh, uh, a lot of plantings in the backyard, and I got to see a fair number of birds right from there. I get up early in the morning and walk around the area. It really wasn't a birding trip. I was uh, visiting my daughter trip. Uh, and uh, But I'd get out in the morning and bird around, and, and uh, I remember one of the birds I saw that was Passerini's tanager, just a really cool tanager. It uh, has a scarlet red rump, and is jet black, uh, the males, uh, and uh, like tanagers, in molt, especially the first-year males that I got to see are this bizarre red and green and black all model sort of color in their molt uh, and uh, so it's really cool well i was it was cool to see i went over my bird list here recently and Passerini's tanger wasn't anywhere on the list i thought what happened Well, this scarlet rump tanners are on the list now well they've made a lump uh, turns out Cherie's tanger and passerini's tanger have been lumped into the same species uh scarlet rump tanager apparently because they had been split earlier and now they lumped again it has something to do with a new study where the males of both species respond equally well to the to the calls and songs of of each each subspecies so turns out there one species didn't uh cost me a tick on my life list because I'd never seen the other subspecies. But lumps and splits affect birders everywhere, including including the tropics. I remember a couple of stories about birding in the tropics. One of the places I wanted to go while I was in Costa Rica was to the Kikoli Hawk Watch site. I was there in August, so not a time where in that part of the world, uh, hawk migration is in full swing by any means. Now, if I've been at Cape May... August might have been a good time for hawk migration, but that far south, it's more October, November, uh, that the big numbers of hawks that come through, maybe late September, but much uh, considerably later in the year. The eastern uh, US, eastern uh, aspect of North American breeding hawks uh, migrate largely to uh, far south of here, a lot of them to South America. Uh, And uh, so they tend to have certain routes that they take and there are places where the birds are congregated in huge numbers. They sometimes are where there are thermals off a, off a cliffs or mountain ranges. There are sometimes along coastlines. Well, in Costa Rica, on the east coast of Costa Rica, there are both of those things. Uh, the coast, the coastal range uh, is very close to the coast in southern Costa Rica. Uh, so it's about a three-mile patch of land before it gets very steep up into the Telemanca Range. And... Uh, the hawks are really funneled through that area. So the Hawk Watch platform uh, there uh, sees more hawks than any other single Hawk Watch platform uh, in North America. Uh, it's not as many as Veracruz, but but in Veracruz they add up several uh, count locations to be the Veracruz count. This, for a single platform watch, has over 2 million hawks go by every year. Pretty crazy place, and I thought, boy, that would be really fun to go to, even if it's not during the hawk-watching season. I'll just go check it out. Well, the Cacoldi tribe, it's on tribal property and you're supposed to call ahead to make reservations. Well, I called ahead and they said, oh, it's not the peak season, you don't need a reservation, just come on in, you can do it. Uh, And we get there and there's been terrible rains over the the month before I came, Uh, tremendous amounts of rain. And a mudslide had had washed out the usual path to the Hawk Watch platform. So that was kind of a drag, but there was another path around, had been told, uh, and we thought, well, we can do that. But it was several miles long, and turned out it was really steep and really slippery and really thick brush. They had to whack your way through it places, and it, it was quite a challenge. Uh, well, I was just getting going on getting to this, and I'd already fallen several times and covered with mud. Just must have looked like a, an abomination. Uh, and this Old native Kikuldi uh, tribal member. I mean, he had to be 80 at least. Like, i um, sprightly. Comes up to us, uh, and he doesn't speak English, just his native language. And and we don't speak e- we don't speak his language, of course. Uh, but he makes it clear to me that I really should have a walking stick. So out comes a machete and whack 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 whack. Pretty soon, there's a beautiful walking stick made for me. Uh, and so I used that the rest of the day, and it probably prevented half of the rest of the falls I had that day. I was pretty much a muddy mess by the time I got back to the car. We never made it to the hawk watch station. It just was uh, inaccessible with the, with the knowledge we had of the trail and the energy we had to get up there. It just didn't happen. But it was a really memorable day and had a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm hoping to get back to the Kikaldi Hawk Watch sometime during Hawk Watch season when the trail has been uh, better established and uh, can get up there and see a fabulous Hawk Watch when I visit uh, Costa Rica sometime in the fall. I also got on a couple of other little birding trips with Jean uh, and uh, had a good time there. Uh, tropical birding for me is a challenge because the birds are just tough to see. They're way up high, the light's tough. It's just, it's just hard to see birds in the tropics uh, for me. But uh, I'm hoping to find a guide down there spend more time learn some of the birds myself and uh, get a little bit more proficient. Every year eBird has a global big day. Where what they do is they collate the checklists on a specific day, usually a Saturday in early May, uh, for every country and find and list the countries in order of the most species seen in that country on that day that are submitted to eBird as checklists. Well, as usual, Colombia came through as a number one uh, country. It had 1,445 species with 7,221 lists this year. Uh, So a lot of species with a modest effort in terms of uh, eBird checklists submitted. For comparison, the United States came in fifth. That had 712 species on 68,689 checklists. So about half the species on about a tenth the number of checklists. So it had about, uh, Colombia had about twice as many species with, but the U.S. had 10 times as many lists. So that speaks a little to the species diversity of the tropics. Uh, Peru was second with 1,132 species. Costa Rica was seventh. Uh E-bird use is much more prevalent in the Western Hemisphere. So Kenya came in first place on of non Western Hemisphere countries with 613 species, but that was on only 85 checklists. So there's just not the e-bird coverage in other parts of the world that there are in the Americas. Uh, but still, uh, cool stuff. That just speaks to the species diversity. Uh, of the tropics, with birds, but with everything. Plants and mammals and reptiles and every spe- insects, every species. Tremendous diversity in the tropics. And I, and I bring that up in part uh, because my guest today on the Bird Banner Podcast is my daughter, Jean. She's not really a birder. She grew up in a birding family, so she has a little bit of a clue, but not really a birder. But I wanted to talk to her about Uh, a a movement that's happening in the tropics that if it becomes uh, more and more successful will impact birding. It's called agroforestry or permaculture uh, agriculture and uh, food forests is another another term for it. But it's basically a way to generate tremendous amounts of edible food uh, in a more natural sort of setting uh, where uh, instead of uh, doing monoculture crop farming where you just strip the land plant your crop grow a whole bunch of it uh, invite a whole bunch of pests because there's a single uh, crop there so use a lot of pesticides to control the pests uh, and 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 largely destroy the destroy the habitat for everything except the crop that you're growing uh, uh, you can uh, use uh pieces of land and have a tiered crop system with a lot of diverse uh, species diversity uh, in your crop uh, and make it a very uh, hospitable place for uh, other creatures than humans and the crop you're intending to grow. Uh, So Jean and I talk a bit about that. It's really a cool concept and I'm hoping it uh, catches on and becomes more and more popular. Uh, So without further introduction, Welcome to the Bird Bader Podcast, episode number 62, my daughter, Jean Pullen. Hey, Jean. Welcome to the Bird Bader Podcast. Hello.
1: Thank you for the invitation on.
0: Yeah, I had my son on a few episodes ago, Brett, and now I get my daughter. My daughter living the life. Uh, a little introduction. My daughter grew up with me. We lived in Puyallup, Washington, and, and she was, a, you know, Nothing average about Jean, but in a lot of ways, a standard-issue American young girl. You know, she was into all the things young girls are, sports and a little bit of nature and all sorts of other cool stuff and went the fast route through college and into business life. But now, things are different. I've got an environmentalist in my family. What's up, Jean? Yep.
1: Um, Yeah. So now I'm in Costa Rica. I am becoming food sovereign, especially in this time now, I really believe that we must grow some of our own food in our own backyards. We must convert our lawns to gardens, edible gardens, um, that soil is our common ground. And we all collectively need to do the work and plant the trees to feed our growing world.
0: Well, you've been walking that walk for sure. I visited you in Costa Rica a little over, like, well, not two years ago. I should have been back by now, but this virus got in the way. Uh, but anyway, uh, you have a place uh, in, on the in the Caribbean in and down way down south near Panama. Uh, and when I was there, it had it was just being converted from a lawn in front and behind the the property that you you know the building and. Uh, Tell us what's happened in a little over a year, Jean. I saw pictures. It's just unbelievable.
1: Yeah, I can. Yeah. Um, So we um, purchased 500 square meters, which is not very much land at all, and it was a lawn, and it had already some beautiful trees, like existing coconuts overhead um avocado tree and that was what attracted us to the land is just already there was some existing fruit trees but it was majority of it was grass and that's the majority of all of the homes across the world is lawns why do we have lawns when you can be growing some of your own greens we should at least be growing our salads and some of our food in our backyards. Um, So we started out asking all our neighbors for all of their compost, all the leaves they were raking up, all the um, logs that they were trimming. We asked for all of that material.
0: If it was organic, you wanted it.
1: Yes, so we had a big pile going in our yard for probably a year. And then we started crafting this pile into creating beds and raised beds, kind of like Holgiculture sort of beds, where we would layer different materials, starting with the logs or the harder material at the bottom, creating a lasagna of materials, and then putting a layer of sand, a layer of soil from within the forest, and then a layer of leaves to create a really nice environment of mixing cultures of um, beautiful nutrient life that the plants can thrive in, mimicking that of what's already in the forest.
0: So you, uh, and by doing that, you turn a, a two-foot wide patch into a five-foot surface area of humped-up land that you can grow off all corners of, so you... You you exponentially or you significantly increase the uh, the surface area from which you can grow things.
1: Yeah, and bringing in a lot of bird life. Now, if you come back and survey the birds in the land, there are probably four different varieties of hummingbirds coming in and um, enjoying the beautiful birds of paradise flower collection that we have and other flowers that they enjoy as well
0: yeah when i was there the birds were spectacular already i have to say i had uh, uh the the tanagers and seed eaters and uh toucans and macaws you 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 saw the green macaws yeah pretty, yeah pretty yeah
1: the green macaws are by far our favorite alan has my partner alan has this dream of like he's called in Macau's going like, like
0: calling him him in
1: with, banano, banana, And (laughs) so sometimes he tries to do that and it really, it's funny and yeah, it's really, it's fun.
0: Pretty cool. And so now you're spending a a part of your year at this place in the Caribbean, but you acquired a larger property in the mountains, uh, Southwest of San Jose, haven't you?
1: Yeah, so Um, we found a hectare of land um, up in the mountains of Costa Rica, near to the Pacific side of Costa Rica, and it was an old cow pasture that um, was converted five years ago um, into starting to plant trees there, and we acquired this cow pasture that has been worked on a little bit there's there's already existing a few existing fruit trees there but much more room to grow and three rivers flowing through so the most important for us is water fresh water and room to grow
0: so you've got those You've got those, Uh, and you you just uh, made a major uh, major trip to the Caribbean to to your nursery there. You had a whole bunch of uh, seedlings and other things started and brought them back. And what did you plant? Several hundred uh, several hundred uh, plants, didn't you? Trees and plants.
1: Yeah, in the past month, since the middle of April to now, we've probably planted over five hundred. Edible trees and shrubs. So, edible perennials, which include something like katuk and chaya and moringa, all edible leaves. And then we've planted really exotic fruit trees and your typical, like mangoes. So, like the exotics being durian. We've planted two durians, five breadfruits. Um, jackfruits mangoes um, many avocados many different varieties of bananas Um, in a year we should be able to eat all of our roots and our greens from the land and in five years we'll have a massively fruiting a diverse (laughs) landscape from grass to food forest
0: yes a lot of the people listening will have heard of shade grown coffee uh you know north americans are encouraged to drink shade grown coffee because you know shade grown coffee has to have a, a an over, overstory of uh, larger trees and and for uh birds especially that's a, a fabulous place to live uh but uh, your concept t- it is like that on steroids it's you, some people call it a food forest or agri agroforestry. There are a lot of words for the type of uh, agriculture that you're doing. Uh, but uh, describe how that how that is gene and, and how that is such a spectacular place for wildlife.
1: yeah, well, I think what gives me so much fire and what got me into this um environmentalism is just seeing all the monocrops that exist on this earth and all the devastation from animal agriculture it's it's just it's wiped out and extinct many species and all it's it's uh really gone quite um it's quite sad to think about all the devastation Of deforestation due to our own food supply. And now we're seeing how broken that is. And so that's what's given kind of created this fire in me, along with seeing how then with a monocrop, there's no diversity. So then chemicals are sprayed on the earth, which are consumed by the people, which then create this domino effect of unhealthy people. An unhealthy planet so what's the solution soil soil is our common ground soil is what feeds our food and so when we think about an agroforest system or a food forest it is just mimicking what's what is in nature so Mm. if you look at a forest you see there's shrubs there's ground cover there's a little bit there's mid-story trees and then there's a canopy of trees above you and that's how you can think about an agroforest system in the tropics my favorite agroforest system is that of cacao or you know what chocolate's made of bananas breadfruit and taro and uh, turmeric and ginger and Vanilla vine growing up a tree, so you can kind of think of such diversity of life and microorganisms that mimic that of the forest, so that animal life, birds can be eating, monkeys can be eating, humans can be um, enjoying. So it's it's kind of creating this earth and this food system into something of harmony of being connected, all being connected, um, to our, to this earth and to this one live organism.
0: So Jean, you've also been involved in, in yoga and involved in, I mean, surfing and yoga and all <laughs> sorts of, uh, physical activities there. Have you, and I know you do a lot of hiking Uh, Have you have you found parts of your property that are especially birdie that I would say, oh, my gosh, I've got to go there every day?
1: Well, just sitting out on the deck, we see toucans just going from one side. So we have river. We have a river on either. We're kind of on a a hill, which then um, is it's a grass hill. And then on either side, we're in a bio quarter protecting some of the rivers that are going through the land. Mm -hmm. So on these bio quarters, there's endemic trees that the birds and animals are, are living in. And we see a toucan just fly from one side to the other. We see Turkey, these big Turkey birds that fly from, (laughs) one side to the other, we see arakaris like like flying. It's just beautiful to see that just sitting on the back deck we can see just <laughs> so many birds.
0: Wow. That's something. So uh so it sounds to me like uh enjoying coconut and uh mango water on the back deck and uh sitting in the shade would be a great place to go birding.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't need to go very far.
0: A little bit different subject. How has uh, COVID nineteen uh, pandemic affected Costa Rica? I know they've closed the borders, so I can't visit you. Uh, how how has it affected uh, you know just life there in general?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the borders were closed in the middle of March, and um, during that week, the following was um, Easter week, along with holy week Mm -hmm. and that was the strictest kind of restriction week where everyone was mandated to stay inside and not congregate um and that i think that um we've the whole country did a very good job of reacting to COVID 19 almost immediately um closing the borders and um, warning the population to be safe and stay in and up until probably the last few weeks um, it, the country has continued to operate markets being mostly open grocery stores being open but all of the national parks were closed the beaches were closed granted in many parts of the country you can still access beaches uh and parks for us personally we've been so focused on planting trees and regenerating the land that it we've been in our own world in isolation and uh working really hard harder than ever to um create this food sovereignty um but with covid19 now everything is kind of opening back up um people are starting to get in to gather more. And um there's only a thousand cases in the the whole all of Costa Rica. All yeah. of Costa Rica. So people are just being careful and um eating healthy, taking their turmeric and ginger tea and yeah, living life now as more normally.
0: Pura vida now, see.
1: Pura vida. Cuda it's always Cuda Vida in Cuda Vida, Costa
0: Rica. See, see, yeah, very nice. So, Gene, uh, what uh, what do you see going forward for for uh, your property in the West? Do, do you see that just uh, becoming a full fledged, almost all of it, uh, food forest, or do you do you uh, What's up?
1: Yeah, so the fruits will start fruiting in five years or so or four Mm -hmm. years so I think that we will have an abundance of of fruit and be able to sell and bring this fruit to market in in later years but in the meantime we will enjoy the edible perennials and other other plants that are sooner to um, grow and produce Um, such as we've planted yucca, for example, like Mm -hmm. 200 yuccas in the past few months. Wow. Um, So in a year from now, we'll have so much yucca and plantains, for example, um, as well. So I see it just being a very abundant, um, fruiting food forest, living within this garden, interacting with this garden every day, picking fruits, it, eating from the land, and sharing, from, sharing as well with our neighbors. I see this as a model that can be replicated throughout the tropics, throughout um, our neighborhood, but it starts with our core, which is our own food supply and our own backyard and then that ripple goes outwards um, to our neighbors and, and, and outward.
0: So you've been working with Jungle Project, that's a big uh, part of the, that educational uh, outreach arm of that company is really uh, working on that same sort of thing, aren't they?
1: Yeah, Jungle Project is a project, it's a social enterprise all about trees, training and trade. So there's two parts of the project. One is the social justice and kind of nonprofit arm, and the other is a for-profit arm, and is the market or the trade. Which um, so we will be able to have um, a market for the farmers that are producing the um, producing food, and it's primarily a breadfruit um, agroforestry system. So breadfruit have you heard of breadfruit do you know what breadfruit is
0: i have heard of breadfruit my daughter told me about it
1: <laughs> oh my gosh breadfruit is a tree that can feed it is a miracle tree it's really a tree that can help help with our hungry world help with regenerating it and help with feeding it um and what's so cool about breadfruit is one tree can produce up to 400 pounds of breadfruit a year and each fruit is just beautiful and big and green um it's kind of like a potato that grows on trees but it has it's has more nutritional value and it's more nutritionally dense than other carbohydrates, and it's very low on the glycemic index um, as well. So it's great for for people with diabetes or high blood pressure. Um, yeah. yeah. So very cool.
0: Those of you who are not familiar, glycemic index is the propensity for a food to increase your blood sugar when you eat it. Uh, and yeah. a lot of simple carbohydrates, you eat. You eat uh, a slice of white bread that's extremely high on the glycemic index. Whole wheat bread might be less so. Some fruits are less so because they have more fiber and are more complex. It takes longer for the gut to break them down into the simple, simple building blocks. So, sounds like a great, uh, great fruit, a great product. And uh, I'm hoping your company goes. Uh, uh, the company you have worked with, not your company, your, co- your the company you've worked with, uh, does great. I'm hoping that really. P- really pays dividends for the whole world as a, as a, as an ecosystem. That'd be great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's many ways to support the project and, um, and support this regenerative movement. And it starts with your own bite. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone starts, it starts with our own consumption and, choosing where it comes from and choosing what we consume and knowing where it goes where the waste goes
0: so very cool yeah very cool well jean i know you wanted to keep this short thanks so much for being on i appreciate it this is going to be great uh and i cannot wait to visit see my girl again
1: i can't wait too it's going to be fun and Thank you for having me on this podcast. And I know that we're gonna find many more birds together.
0: We are, we are. I can't wait to teach you, teach myself and then teach you about all the birds on your property and then the places nearby and then the rest of the country and then the rest of middle America. Sounds great to me, sounds great to me. Soon as I can travel, I'm headed your way. (laughs) You take care Gene. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Bander Podcast, episode number 62 with Jean Pullen. Thanks for listening. We talked a lot today about restorative agriculture, projects, especially in the tropics, that improve habitat and have a lot of other benefits. Our neotropic migrants who winter there need better habitat to improve their chances of surviving the winter, coming back to breed again here. That's a major issue for many birds in North America, who winter farther south, that's also a major issue for, obviously, people, farmers, and other animals, creatures that live down there. So I hope you want to learn about that. You can go to a website called kisstheground.com and learn lots more through their podcasts, their videos, and their written material. I'll also write a blog post on birdbander.com that talks more about that and other issues we talked about today. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, good birding, good day.